Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we will begin in verse 16, and we will read through chapter 9, verse 12. There's a number of verses here, but all of them are really containing a lot of information about the same themes. So that's why we're, we're going over uh, these particular verses. Have you ever heard the statement that nothing is certain except death and taxes? You've heard that? Uh, no doubt we all have in, in one setting or another. And what Solomon is really focusing on tonight is not so much taxes and the certainty of that, but rather the certainty of death. That is his focus tonight. He seems to be a little bit, uh, you see a little bit of frustration in Solomon as he is trying to, to navigate through this, trying to reason through what we may know in this life and the limitations that he ends up coming against. There are a number of things that he seeks to set his mind to, but ultimately he runs into a wall in the sense of not being able to comprehend or fully understand. And... That is understandable because many things we desire to know, but we are unable. We want to know the intricacies of how God works within the creation. We want to know so many things about our own lives and what is yet to come. Uh, what about in the lives of others? Why did this particular thing happen in this way rather than another way? We don't understand. We, we, can't, we can't peel back and, and look and see and, uh, the, the obvious answers and so it's frustrating. Solomon seems to be frustrated in our passage tonight. But what we come back to is even though uh, our knowledge is limited, um, we rest in the fact that God's knowledge is infinite. Solomon takes us on this journey tonight of wrestling with a number of different issues, but he comes back to this. What is certain? From a human perspective, he's looking at this. And what is certain is death. Death is certain. And so in light of this certainty, then the question must be asked, so how then shall we live? What shall we do with this? How do we live in view of our coming death? And that's where Solomon is going to address these things for us tonight to give us a perspective, to give us uh, a, des a destination, a path, in order to follow uh, as we await our own death. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we will begin in chapter 8, verse 16, and read through chapter 9, verse 12, of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done under the excuse me, which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. 
For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toll in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. And neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, a man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And though these are difficult passages, uh, we pray that the Spirit of God would open our minds and allow us to understand as much as we can, that it would produce in us a greater desire to live for you all the days that you have given us here on this earth until the day you call us home. Father, we don't want to squander our time, but we want to use it uh, to, to praise you, to glorify you while we have opportunity so, Father, guide our thoughts tonight and do a work within us by the Spirit of God that we would be changed by what we read. Father, thank you for all that you are. Thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray all these things. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. Again, just reading through this, you see, you see some of the frustration on the part of Solomon, I set my mind to know, and what can man discover? Nothing. There is a particular thing that he has in view here. And really, in verses 16 and 17, what is he talking about? He's, he's referring to the work of God, and this is really speaking of his providence. And he's coming to this understanding, or rather just expounding for his readers some of the things that he already knows, is that God's providence is unknowable. His providence is unknowable. There are things with certainty that we can know. He's not saying that we can't know anything with certainty, but in view specifically of God's providence, what can we really know with certainty? We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know the things that happen today, how they're going to be intertwined and lead to something else tomorrow. We don't know how it all fits together. But there are things that we do know with certainty. When it comes to God's uh, work in creation, when it comes to the redemptive work in Christ, when it comes to all that the Scripture clearly reveals to us, you can pick something in particular. There are things that we can know for certainty, the consummation of all things, etc., but then again, there are limitations of what we can know when it comes to God's providence, how he governs everything within his creation. We want to know, we, we would love to know what tomorrow is holding. We would love to know what's coming next year. We would love to know, you know, the day of our death, which he'll get into. But in order to know all of these things, we would have to have the wisdom of God and we don't. We can't see how it all fits together. Now, there are acts of, of providence that we can look back on and we can see that God was working in this particular thing over here. And to see how it, it brought us up to where we are, we can see that. There are a number of things in our own personal lives that we can see how God had led us to this particular person or this particular church. And we heard the gospel and, and we were converted and then we grew in Christ. And there was a number of people that God placed in our life for that very purpose to lead us where we're at. We can see things like that. We can look back in history. We can see how God's providence was working, uh, for example, in the time of the Reformation. 
which is very amazing uh, because it was in the 1480s, 1490s, in which you have Erasmus of Rotterdam, a Catholic priest, who is going around trying to find all the New Testament documents that he can to make a full, complete Greek manuscript of the New Testament. And just the time that he does this and he publishes this, this is the time in which Luther's coming on the scene, and Zwingli, and Tyndale, and Knox, and Calvin. And what are they using to make these translations? Not only Tyndale's, but Luther made a German translation. You have the Miles Coverdale Bible. You have the Great Bible, which is really owe its debt to Tyndale. But what are they using? They're using Erasmus's Greek New Testament in order to make these newer translations. And so you can see how God is working in that particular thing and how he brought all of that together at the right time in order to produce one of the greatest revivals in the history of the church. So there are things that we can see when we look back as far as the providence of God, but to know the present, to really know what's coming in the future, we want to know, but we can't. We're limited. How can we know what God is doing? How can we know uh, what, how God is orchestrating all of these things for his ultimate glory? How can we know that? We know that this is true, but in the way that he carries it out, how do we know what things are next? We would have to know all that God knows and his wisdom and knowledge are unsearchable and his, his ways are unfathomable. How can we know? We're finite creatures. And so Solomon says, I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even, even though one should never sleep day or night. And a lot of commentators are saying that this was such a, a, a task for him to try to understand and to know that even he's losing sleep over all of these things, trying to understand. I mean, he's really putting his mind to really try to know when it comes to the providence of God, when it comes to the intricacies of all the things that he is talking about here, to know things with certainty. He's setting his mind, and yet he's limited. I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which, which has been done under the sun. But here's something that he says. Even though man should seek Laboriously, he will, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. It doesn't, he's not just talking about him. He's talking about anyone else. You may seek. You may try to know. You may say that you know. But do you really? He says, even though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. You cannot know how God is working in something for his ultimate glory and how he is orchestrating all of these events together. We look, at, we look at the things in our own personal lives, in our state, in our nation. We see so many different things going on at once. How does all this fit together? Well, we can't discover it. We're limited. We're limited when it comes to the providence of God. Now, one writer says this. The inscrutability of divine providence can be viewed as a frustrating limitation or as a liberating reality. And this is where Solomon is going to be leaning into, especially once we work our way towards the end of the book. It can be frustrating, wondering, God, why is this going on in my life? Why did this happen today? What is going to go on tomorrow? What's coming down the pike? It's frustrating. Why don't you just let us know so we can be prepared? Or we can say, oh, Lord, though I don't know, I know that you do. And I know all things are in your power and under your control. And so in that, I can truly rest. No matter what comes about in my life or happens to me tomorrow, I know that it is by the sovereign will of God that whatever comes, it, it, it's, it comes. What do you say to that? It's going to happen. But it happens according to the sovereign will of God. And so for that, it can be a liberating reality. I don't know. You don't want to be so giddy about it. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know he does. 
but it is a liberating reality. God knows all things, and he knows all things because he has ordained all things. He doesn't just know it because he happens to have infinite knowledge of all the future events that's going to take place. He sees it coming, and so he knows and he can prepare. That's not how God's knowledge works. He knows all things because he ordained all things. You cannot separate the knowledge of God with the power of God. When we talk about his omniscience and his omnipotence, they go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. And so in that we rest. God, you have all power over all that occurs, and you have all knowledge of everything that's going to occur, and it's going to be brought in my life regardless if I'm prepared for it or not. And most of the time we're not prepared for it, and that's why we must lean on the Spirit of God in order to help us. And what does he say? My grace is sufficient. And so in that, I can accept what comes knowing that God is sovereign and that God knows what is coming because he planned it. And so in, even in the uncertainty of God's providence, there is that liberating reality, as the writer says, that the believer may experience knowing that all things are known by God. He even says this in chapter 9, verse 1, as he is bringing into view the very thing that he knows to be certain. He says, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that, <clears throat> that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's where Solomon's coming to. All their deeds, everything about them, every part of their life, every aspect of their life, the longevity of their life, everything is in the hand of God. And that is to be not, not, not a, a fearful reality, but one of comfort. This is given as a comfort. Instead of the unbelieving thinking that everything is just by chance or everything is just so random. For the believer, that's not the case. Because we recognize that everything is in the hand of God. All people are in the hand of God. Now, he specifically mentions righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. But that is also universal when it comes to even the unbelieving. All their deeds, whether they're foolish, whether they're evil, all are in the hand of God. He's orchestrating all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. He declares the end from the beginning. His counsel will stand. And who can frustrate his counsel, as Nebuchadnezzar had said? All their deeds are in the hand of God. Their lives are in the hand of God. Their futures are in the hand of God. He says, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. From a human standpoint, as far as the relationships in our life or the people that we encounter in our life, we don't know if they're going to love us. We don't know if they're going to hate, hate us. And any new meeting with someone, you, you have no idea what awaits. How can you know? There are people that, <clears throat> that have come in the, into the church and in the last you know, 11 years or whatever, and you have high hopes for them, you think, man, this is, this is, uh, this, this is some good people that are coming here. Maybe they can help us out in, in a number of other things. And, and perhaps we even think to ourselves, oh, Lord, you let them here for this particular reason, but the fact remains that a lot of people end up disappointing you. We put a lot of expectations, and we think that, again, trying to understand the providence of God, we think that, that, well, these people are here for this. Then it turns out that's not at all the reason why they're here. And a lot of folks have left, and it's been disappointing in that sense of thinking one thing and something else coming about. So you have no idea with any relationship whether it's love or hate, anything awaits. But what, is, what did he say before that? 
that they're in the hand of God. From our perspective, and this really should be you know, from God's view versus man's view. God's view, he sees all, he knows all, he ordains all. From man's view, we have no idea. We have no idea. Anything awaits him, he says. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. He's speaking of death. And for Solomon, this is, this is frustrating to him. And you see it in, the, in even him saying that this is, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun from his perspective, from that human perspective. How is it that the righteous who are living accordingly, who are worshiping God, who make sacrifice, who remain clean in that sense, who haven't defiled themselves, how is it that they have the same fate as these who are unrighteous and unclean and vile? This just doesn't seem right. Why, why, aren't, why aren't the righteous uh, privileged even right, right at their uh, conversion not to taste death? Why do they still have to endure death? And Solomon, again, you can see he's, this doesn't sit well with him. He's frustrated thinking of this. Now, even, even in the passages that, in, in, the, in the scripture that promises a long life, you honor your father and your mother, it may go well, you may, you may live long in the land. Sometimes that's not the case. Even though you may live righteous, you may die young. You may live righteous. You may suffer before you die. It just doesn't seem right. From Solomon's perspective. And, and even though we're looking at this from Solomon's perspective, even, even we ourselves find this troubling. We're troubled by it too. Why did this person have to die now? seemed as if they were full of life. They still had a number of years that they could have lived and enjoyed life. Why did they have to die at this point? What do, you, what do we make of that? But here's the certainty of it. Regardless of our frustrations with it, regardless of the problems that we have with it, the certainty is, it's going to come. That's where Solomon's going to. We know it's coming. Death has been appointed to all, and none will escape death. Now, in view of that, perhaps Solomon is thinking that in view of the coming death, in the view of, of life ending, Perhaps this should affect the way that we live. But he says, though, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. After where they go to the dead. There are still those who are squandering their time, even though all people, regardless if they're believers or not, they know that death is coming. And yet they live in this kind of a manner is what Solomon is saying, full of evil and insanity when they know that death is coming. Instead of gratefully making use of the time that God gives, instead they squander it. They squander their time living out their evil desires and all their insanity. Now this is puzzling to Solomon. If you know that you're going to die, why would you live in this kind of a manner? Now, for us, again, we can't just say, Solomon, 
you, you got some problems, man. I mean, who comes, who, who's thinking of these things? But we do the same thing because we're looking at people and all the evil that they do. And, and we say to ourselves, you have no idea what's coming when you die. You're choosing to live this way. And you have no idea what's getting ready to happen to you. So in that sense, we do the same. In view of death, we would think that everyone would want to have at least some desire in order to uh, prepare for the life to come from our perspective. But again, when we go back to it, we know that man being born in sin is automatically an enemy of God and that he will fulfill his desires because he is depraved. Even in view of his coming death, he doesn't even care. I remember talking to uh, a younger guy that was working with us at one time. This has been, um, I don't know, probably seven, eight years ago, maybe. He was a younger guy, and he and I were talking, and we had a break, and was, I was sharing the gospel with him. And he said, you know, all that really makes sense. I've never heard it, you know, explained that kind of a way exactly why did Christ have to die and all of this sort of thing. I mean, he was recounting back to me what I said. He, he was listening. But he said, I just, I don't think about it. I'm just really not interested. And you think to yourself, you have an understanding of what I just said. And you have an understanding that one day you're going to die. And still, to you, you're just not interested. What is that? But the depraved heart of men that we can't understand why they can't believe when it seems so easy to understand. But he's blinded by it. His, his depravity. He's blinded by his depravity. He's overcome by his own desires because men love darkness rather than light. We can't understand it either. We don't, we don't get it. All will be taken in death and many will squander their time. He does speak of, of life in, in, in a hopeful sense. He says, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. The live dog is better than the dead lion, even though the lion is more powerful than the dog. But the lion's dead. The dog's still alive. So that's better. It's better for the live dog than the dead lion. There's hope in life. There's enjoyment in life. There are things that Solomon is then going to really just begin to kind of to really catalog for us, uh, contrasting life and death. What does he say? And again, understand that Solomon is speaking from a human perspective. He is not giving insight into the intermediate state of man. He's not going into that realm. But from the human perspective, and for a man like Solomon who has continually sought out whatever pleasure that he wanted, indulging in everything that he desired, and then setting his mind to know wisdom, the smartest man alive at that particular time. I mean, this is his passion. This is his, 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 his life's goal is to know and to take pleasure in all things. And so for him, as he is cataloging these, these are very disturbing to him. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Again, from his perspective and all that he desired to know and to experience in his life, his great passions that he sought after, he's looking at death and saying, there's no more pursuit of wisdom. That was his pursuit. That was his passion. There's no more pursuit of it. Solomon built magnificent buildings, his own palace and the temple of God and all of these magnificent things. And he looks and he says, 
Well, they're not even going to have any reward or any wages for all the toll that they did. It's done. Their labor's done. They can't, they can't enjoy that any longer. They no longer have a reward. And for the dead, you may have people who remember you and know you while you live. But he says, their memory is forgotten. When you look over a graveyard and you see the hundreds of gravestones that are there, all of these people lived out their life in which God had given them under the sun to enjoy the blessings of life. All of them now have perished. They are gone. And who then remembers them? Maybe their family, if it's within that one generation, Maybe a second generation of a family, perhaps. Who else remembers them? Their memory is forgotten. For a man like Solomon, who had people coming from all parts of the world to speak to him because his fame went out into all the world, the thought of being forgotten memory of me being gone? That's what he's saying. But not only that, he says, indeed their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. They will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Their, the zealousness that they, that, that they had in life. You know, you get around certain people, especially you just, you like being around them because they just... They're so passionate about life and what they're doing and the, it's exciting to be around them because they do. They, they have that excitement about whatever's happening in their life. They're zealous for living. They're passionate about living. But then when they die, it's gone. Their love, their hate, their zeal, it's gone. They will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. And again, this is talking about from a human perspective. Solomon, again, is not talking about the intermediate state of man. But from his perspective as a man who is living, viewing those who have died. They have no knowledge. No more reward. No more wages for their toil. No more memory of them. Their zeal for life, it's gone. So from a human perspective, death is a sad reality. It's a sad reality that Solomon is trying to grapple with because it is a sad reality, but that's the, that's the fact of the matter. It's a reality. There's no getting around it. There's no getting away from it. And we'll come back to verses 7 and 9 in a moment, but when you look at verses 10 and following, excuse me, 11 and 12 rather. Death is certain, as he's been saying. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. It, it matters not. It doesn't matter who they are. Death will take them. Now, he says this, for time and chance overtake them, overtake them all. Again, from a human perspective, death seems to be very random. You think that this person over here is going to live a long time because maybe they're, they're very fit, they're very, you know, in shape, they have great health. And yet they die while others are still living who are in very bad health. You have the poor man who may outlive the, the wealthy man. You have no idea whose turn it is. And so, again, it just seems to be so random. It's like time and chance, just take them all. One of our family members here recently had some surgery, heart surgery. He was around 60 years old. 
He come home, everything seemed to be fine. Then he just died. Thought everything was going to be okay. But then he died. Is there a way to know whose turn it is? No. It comes upon us suddenly when we least expect it. You know, when you, when you go back and you read or if you listen to uh, Max McLean's version of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is very, very, very well done, by the way. In Jonathan Edwards' sermon, he speaks of those who are in hell. And if you were to go to hell and you would ask this person, did you think that it was going to happen when it did? They would say, no. I thought that, that my way was going was to be smarter. I wasn't expecting this, but death suddenly overtook me when I least expected it. There is no way to know when a person's time is up. But again, contrasting God's view of things with man's view of things, the psalmist says of the Lord, all the days of my life are written in your book before there was yet one of them. All the days of my life have been planned by the Lord. And when my last day comes, regardless of what precautions that I'm taking in order to live longer, my day will come. And it will be my turn when I least expect it. Death is certain. The day of your death is not. It will come upon us suddenly. We can't know who is going to die, how long anyone is going to live. We can't think just because people are young that they have a full life ahead of them. They may not. But what do we rest in? We rest in what Solomon said earlier, that all are in the hand of God. Again, when you think about God's providence and you're thinking about God's control over everything, this is where the comfort comes in. I will not die one day sooner than what God has appointed for me. I will not die one minute sooner or one minute later than what God has appointed for me. You can narrow this down to the seconds. It will happen exactly when God planned for it to happen before I was ever born. Because all are in the hand of God. So in the time in which you know, we die, our loved ones die, and we think to ourselves, Oh Lord, how can this be? They seem to just have so much life left. And you have people say things very foolishly that perhaps it wasn't God's will that this happened. Their life was taken early. If, if it wasn't God's will for it to happen, then I am afraid. Because then we're acknowledging that there's something outside of the control of God. And that particular something happens to be the certainty of all life, which is death. That makes me fearful. If that were true. But it's not true. Our lives are held in the hand of God. And when the appointed time comes, it can be a comfort for the people of God. I know, O oh Lord, that it was your will that my loved one leave in the moment that they did. I'm saddened by it. And yet at the very same time, I am grateful to you because I know where they're at. I don't just, we don't, and we don't just say that just to try to make ourselves feel better about someone's death. It is a reality for those who are in Christ. It's, and when someone, I remember my mom telling me this a long time ago, that when somebody, especially close to you, dies, it makes heaven, the, the reality of heaven, that much more real. Because now you know somebody who's actually there. It's one thing when you have extended family members. But it's another when it's someone very close to you. And now they're there. And you know they're there. That's the reality of it. And so even as Solomon went into earlier in chapter 7, even though there's a time of mourning, yet there's a time of rejoicing at the very same time. Because we know that all are in the hand of God and all things are ordained of God. So in light of that then, 
What then does he lead us to? He leads us to some very interesting places as we've been working our way through this book. He said before, eat, drink, and be merry. What is he going to say now? Eat, drink, and be merry. In view of death, and in view of the uncertainty of how long we're going to live, what do we do? You enjoy life while it's here. You enjoy all the blessings of life that God has given to you now. Why would we want to live a miserable life right now when we have the joy of the Lord that we can reflect upon and enjoy? Why would we do that? People, sometimes they're workaholics, they just want to work, 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 and they think to themselves, one day I will enjoy the work of my hands. One day I'll get to the point where I can just be at ease and, and, and delight in all that God has done. But then what happens if their life ends before they get to enjoy that? They've missed out. Why, why, why would we want to live a miserable life at any point? Regardless of... Our circumstances. He says, go then. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine in a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. And this isn't a blank check, by the way, saying that it doesn't matter how you live. God's already approved you. But it is in view of those who are living righteously and who are making sacrifice and worshiping. These, These acts, these deeds that are held in the hand of God is what is in view. Eat your bread, drink your wine, let your clothes be white all the time. Now, one theologian, Dale Raff Davis, uh, he was speaking of this particular passage, let your clothes be white all the time. And in one sense, it could, it could mean not to defile yourself into sin. But we, we, we recognize that that kind of language is used of the righteous, um, like in the book of Revelation, for example. But because he says, after that, and let not all be lacking on your head, what is in view is the celebration of life. Dress in your festive clothes. Enjoy the blessings that God has given. Put oil on your head. Have the perfume. Smell good. Enjoy life. Eat your bread. Drink your wine. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. Enjoy your spouse while you have time. Don't be embittered towards your spouse. He is a blessing from God. She is a blessing from God. Enjoy your spouse. Live cheerfully. Drink your wine, eat your bread. What is in view here? All of these temporary blessings as they may be, they are still blessings from God. They are still to be enjoyed by the people of God. And you enjoy them because you recognize whose hand they're coming from. Lord, you put this in my life. You gave me this spouse. You gave me this job that I can... Do whatever my hands find to do and to do with all my might and to enjoy it. That's what he says in verse 10. You gave me all of these things. I don't need to be embittered every time I wake up in the morning. What's today going to bring? I can see the means that God has provided that I may care for my family as a blessing from him. And I may enjoy it. And I enjoy it in one sense because I know that this is a means that God is taking care of my family and I. So whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. There's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. All these temporary blessings indeed will end. And again, from a human perspective, when life is over, these particular things are gone. And so enjoy them while we may. And that's the thing, you know, when you think about, you know, a lot of Christians, you know, what is that one little slogan that people say? They're the, especially of Calvinists, uh, they're the frozen chosen. 
You know, they, they just don't have much life in them. They don't have much happiness in them. I mean, especially recognizing the sovereignty of God and bringing you out of darkness into his light, and it was by his doing and not your doing, we should be some very, very happy people. Happy people that you can see in their life. I'm enjoying life. I'm enjoying this time that God has given me. Do, and that's the thing. Do you enjoy the life that God has given you now? Are you enjoying it? Or does it seem so uh, bland? Nothing. And you know how you tell? How often do you complain? Is there more complaining coming from your lips than giving God thanks? How much complaining are you doing? Versus how much thanks are you giving? We all have to think of that. Because there are times in which we can just be overcome by whatever it is. And we're not thankful for it. But the toll of your hands that God has given you under the sun. The spouse that he has given you. The wine that he has given you. The bread that he has given to you. The, the ability to, to celebrate the life that you have in Christ, all of these things are given to you as a blessing from God the Father to you, His child. The unbelieving, no matter how much fun that they think that they're having, will never be able to celebrate and have the happiness that the children of God do. Because to them, it's all random. They have to keep doing things in order to keep their minds occupied, trying to ignore the fact that one day they're going to die. But not for the child of God. We enjoy the blessings that God has for us here. And then we are living in view of our coming death in which these things will end. But an even greater blessing awaits. So live not just for the now. Not just for the present. You know, people say that. Live for the now. Well, that's just dumb. That's how you get it. That's how you get in all kinds of trouble. You live in view of eternity and what is coming. I think that was precisely one of the reasons why the Puritan Jonathan Edwards prayed to the Lord, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Let me view life and view of eternity and view of what is to come. So we appreciate all that God has given. We need to appreciate all that God has given. Regardless if you have all of the things that are listed here, we have so much more actually when you consider the things that God has blessed us with in our life, in our homes, all of that. I think it was John Piper who said, God is most, most glorified when we are most delighted in him. And you delight in God when you're delighting in the things that God has given to you. So let us appreciate it. Let us be comforted. Not pushed into fear, but be comforted. Knowing that yes, death is certain, but the day of our death is in the hand of God. The day of any of our loved ones is in the hand of God. While it hurts and we experience pain because of the loss that we feel, yet again, there is a great comfort knowing, O oh Lord, this was your will. You had purpose and however much time that you gave. Help me to heal from this and to look forward again to eternity in which there will be no more pain and suffering. And don't live for the now, but live in view of what is to come. One writer says, by keeping one's future destiny in view, one is better able to respond to the present. We don't lose our cool. We don't, you know, live life recklessly, chaotically in the present and in the now. We're handling each situation that comes in our life in view of what is to come. When we have that kind of a perspective, that gives us even greater wisdom on how to navigate through life's trials and life's hurts and sufferings and difficulties and all of that. Disappointments. And if we can live in that 
that kind of a way, then we are really saying and, and, it, and embracing the very words of, of Moses in Psalm 90 when he said, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's how we need to live. That's what we need to be focused on. Death is certain. The time of it is uncertain. But in the meantime, enjoy all the blessings that God has given because all of it is certain in His power. Certainly in His power. Um, let us remember these things and really do a work within our own life that each day we are giving thanks to God for everything that we are privileged to have and to experience while we have time. Let's stand if you would. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this portion of your word. These are deep truths and sometimes difficult realities that we have to be confronted with. We do, we, we do not like to think of, of the day of our death or our loved one's passing. But Father, it, it's certain. But we are comforted to know again that you work all things after the counsel of your will. That you do whatever you please in heaven and on earth. No one can thwart your hand. No one can question the things that you do. You do all that you please in heaven and in earth. You are our sovereign God. And in you we have confidence that you know what you're doing. Regardless in our weak moments in which we think otherwise. Father, remind us that indeed you are the sovereign king. Ruling and reigning bringing everything to whatever brings you the most glory. Father, help us, especially in the days to come in our own lives and for our families uh, in view of what we've been talking about. Help us, Lord, for those that are in Christ to see death as you do when it occurs. As your word tells us, that precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Father, let us see it as something precious because you're calling one of your children home rather than the sad reality that was presented to us from a human perspective. Father, let us glorify you in all things and thank you for all things that you've given. May we appreciate it and give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed. <laughs>